Father, would you hold us near in your mighty arms? Would you allow us to hear the words you whisper to our ears and let them resonate in our souls? Would you clear our minds of all things that are against you, sinful and wrong? Would you fill us today with the thoughts and let our mind be taken captive by the mind of Christ? Would you please today fill this room with your presence in such a way that even those that are first-time guests would say, we sure did sense the presence of the Lord there. And for those that are frequent attenders, we could say, I sense God's nearness in a fresh new way today. He ministered to my heart. Father, today it's our privilege to come before you, but we do not do that lightly or ill-advisedly. We realize that we can only ascend to the hill of the Lord with clean hands and a pure heart. So please clean, clean us up. Please remove every sin. Please give us feet like hinds feet to walk in the heavenly places. Please give us eyes capable of seeing the Lord of glory. And Father, no, we know that we will never be the same if we can see you. For all who met you left your presence with a message to tell that was bold and fresh and life-changing. Let it be so for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Today I began a 10-week series. Aren't you excited? Thank you. A 10-week series on comfort. Now are you excited? Yes. Everybody needs comfort. I don't know what comfort is to you. Some people say for me, it's a hot fudge sun Sunday on a summer day. Some would say it's just laying out by the lake and getting baked by the sun. You'd say that's comfort. Some would say comfort me is a lazy boy in my, in my home and it's a chair, not a person. A lazy boy in my house and I like having that kind of comfort. Some would say it's a warm sweater on a cold winter's evening or a crackling fire in the fireplace. If we asked today your definition of comfort, they'd probably be as diverse, have as many diverse definitions and, and, and pictures of comfort as we have people in the room. But over the next 10 weeks, we're gonna talk about comfort from a lot of different areas. We're gonna look at each one of those and I hope you'll find them helpful. This is the first of 10, so if you make this one, you only got nine to go. And I hope that through this process, your heart will be blessed. Our world, you don't have, you don't need me to tell you, our world's broken and people need comfort. And the truth is the comfort we find that's lasting comes from God. It's his word that gives us comfort. It is his will and walking in his will that gives us freedom to live in comfort. It is the songs we sing about him that gives us comfort. And truly, time in his presence comforts like none other. David found strength in the law of God. Now that's interesting. You ask most folks about the law, they'd say, I find it very restricting. I think it's overstepped its bounds. I think it's filled with too many regulations. But David said, I find your law a delight because I meditate in it day and night. He didn't find God's law oppressive. He didn't find God's law fearful. He didn't find it a source of bondage. He found strength in the things of God. And I think we find strength in the law of God because the law gives us the foundation for life on which we can build a lifetime of walking with him. He gives us a fence to guard us, the way you'd put a fence around a schoolyard to keep children from harm. His law is a focus, a focus on which we can, a focus which if we look upon his law, he will guide us in paths of righteousness. No wonder David found delight there. And may I just say, this call to comfort is also a call to draw near to God. Why? A lot of people that talk about God never comforted by God because the longer distance you are, you cannot sense his nearness. 
But those who draw near to the Lord, he causes Satan to flee. That's what the Bible says. Draw near to God and Satan has to flee from you. Darkness can't come into light. He knows Satan's not smart, smart but he's not stupid. He knows if he gets in the light, he's going to be consumed. And so the closer you get to God, the further you are from Satan. And the closer you are to God, you have access to all power and all authority and all love and all comfort. And so for some of you today, you say, well, Brother Nick, I've heard these verses. I'm not asking you for an intellectual test at the end of the 10 weeks. I'm asking you, have you examined your position of where you stand with Jesus Christ? And you say, well, I'm a Christian. I'm not even asking you that, though that's vitally important. There are many Christians like Peter who followed him afar off. I'm asking you through these 10 weeks to consider, draw near to him. So this morning, what I want to do in these few moments, because I do have one other thing I want to do at the very end, and so I'm going to do my very best to be brief today. Now, you know that's a promise I have a hard time keeping. Pray for me. But I want to try to give you three testimonies today of David and why he found the comfort of God. And you're going to need your Bibles because it's three different singular verses. I want you to see them so you'll have them and you can remark them and remember them from this very first foundational message. God is our comfort. God is our comfort. Now, if that's the case, how could David say, I find my comfort in the Lord? And what does he say about God's attributes and God himself that causes him to sense the comfort that comes from the Lord. Well, look with me, first of all, in Psalm 119. Now, you can't miss the book of Psalms. It's right in the middle. And 119 is really hard to miss because it's the longest book, uh, longest chapter in the Bible. Psalm 119, right in the middle of your book. Psalm 119, verses 75 and 76. The glove of God is unfailing. That's why his comfort is steadfast. Psalm 119, 75 and 76. Look what David has to say. 119.75, I know, Lord, that your judgments are just, that you have afflicted me fairly. Now, what does that mean? David's not, keep in mind in the Hebrew mind, whatever happened to you, God caused it. Because God is all powerful, you would not go through an affliction unless God allowed it to happen. And that's true. So in the Hebrew mind, rather than say God allowed it, it said, well, you know, God afflicted me, meaning the ultimate source of my going through this is God's permissive will for me to be afflicted or go through a time of difficulty. So he says, God, now look what he's saying based on that, knowing that God is allowing something to come into your life. He said, I know your judgments are just. You've afflicted me fairly. In other words, you don't operate by caprice. You don't do something just because, oh, let's try this. That's not the way God operates. He says, you're ordered. You're a God of precept and principle and law. So he says, if, if I know your judgments are just, then what I'm going through must be fair. Now look at this. May your faithful, or literally the word so often is translated unfailing. May your faithful or unfailing love, may your unfailing love comfort me as you promised. David knows God is the foundation of all that is. What God says, he's going to do. And the love of God, he says, is unfailing. Isn't that good? I don't like that word failure. I didn't like it in school when a teacher would say, I'm sorry, you failed. I, I didn't like that. I didn't like it when a coach would say, you failed to do what I told you. Now get back up there and try it again. I, I didn't like the word failure. We don't like the word in the news of failure. The, a bridge fail, failed and cars fell and plummeted to a river below. That's not a good thing. When we hear the brakes fail on a car and an accident occurred that was deadly, we say, goodness, how awful those brakes fail. When we hear an airplane engine failed and a 
plane plunged into a, the earth or into the, a body of water and all aboard were killed, we say how tragic that the airplane engine failed. We have people that go into the hospital fairly regular at a church our size and frequently the diagnosis is they had heart failure. I don't like that word failed. The Bible says of God's love, it is unfailing. What does that mean? Have you ever had somebody that used to love you? And can I get more personal? You ever had somebody you used to love? See, nobody, I think, goes into a relationship that says, well, I'm just going to love you for a month, and then we're going to call this off. I'm just going to be your friend for two months, we're going to quit. Nobody goes into it that way, but over time, something can happen, and there can be that breakdown to the point that love failed. Some of you in this room have been through the tragedy of a divorce, and you know how cruel that can be when somebody says, I don't want to be married anymore. Love failed. You know what it is to have a teenager or young adult that walked out of your life like the prodigal son and they hadn't come back. And you sometimes say, preacher, I don't know exactly where they are. I haven't heard from them in years. Something happened, their love for their parent failed. See, we don't like that word fail. What, what, if I, what if the best I can do, you, do for you today is preach and say, now if you'll come today, I, I can guarantee you this next hour, God will love on you. Now I can't promise what's gonna happen an hour from now, but he'll love you right now, will you come? What kind of invitation is that? As long as today you do good, he's going to love you. But boy, you mess up. He's done with you. What kind of love is that? The Bible says the reason I can be comforted by the love of God is his love is always there. It's steadfast. It is unfailing. His love is wonderful and it's based on his character. Why? His character knows no darkness. His character has no flaws. Why do you think people so often ask for a job, uh, uh, for, for a resume, and want to call references and ask, how did he work? How did she work in the past? Why? One of the things we look at when we're looking for staff, if a staff member's had a church a year for the last 13 years, we're not going to talk to them. You say, well, that's cruel. Listen, if you've left 13 times in 13 years, we're going to be number 14 a year from now. True or false? Why? Because their track record says, I don't stay with anything long. I promise, but I don't deliver. I, listen, anybody can get a bad, bad place once, maybe twice. 13 for 13? <laughs> Y'all listening to any of this? See, that ain't going to happen. So, so when you say God's love is unfailing, how do we know? Over and over from Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Kings, Samuel, right on through. Listen, what does it say? Our God is consistently faithful, and if his character is good, his love is great. You, when you get married, when you get married, sometimes when you were young and you wanted to get married, your father or mother might have concerns about that lady or that man that you brought home and said, I think I'm in love. And they begin to ask questions and they have major question marks and say, uh, listen, I, I love you too much to let you proceed without talking to you a minute. You see, it's not that they didn't want you to be happy. It's they wanted your happiness to be such that they would never say, I hate myself for not saying what I should have said before they ever got married. You see, you could tell a person's character. You can tell what kind of faithful love they're going to display to the one they're about to join. The Bible says because God's character is impeccable, his love is unfailing, and his law never fails. The great theologian Matthew Henry once wrote, when Christ died, he left a will in which he gave his soul to the Father, his body to, the jo to Joseph of Arimathea, 
He granted his clothes to the soldiers at the foot of the cross. And his mother, he entrusted to John. But to his disciples, who had left everything to follow him, he left not silver or gold, but something much better. He said, my peace I leave with you. Not as the world gives, give unto you. My peace I give unto you. It never fails. I don't know who wrote this. In fact, I think it's unknown by anybody. You, you may know, and if so, you can write me later. Don't interrupt me now. But here's a poem that we've heard many, many times. As far as I know, it's, it's anonymous, but it sure is a good little poem, short poem, but one you can remember. God has not promised the sky is always blue. Anybody want to give a testimony? God's not promised the sky is always blue. Flowers thrown pathways all our life through. God hadn't promised sun without rain, joy without sorrow, or peace without pain. God has promised strength for the day, rest for the labor, and light for our way. Grace for the trials and help from above, unfailing sympathy, undying love. You know what David said? I can be comforted by God whose love is unfailing. I'm amazed. And by the way, can I have just a bragging moment? I'm a new granddaddy. Did I tell you all that? I didn't tell you that. Did you see I slipped that in there? I have a, I have a new, thank you. Janine's doing good too. Um, I, I, I have a new little granddaughter, Adeline Rose, over eight, eight and a half pounds, arrived at the world, discovered America January the 5th. Isn't that good? That, that's all. Now let, let's go into the sermon. But here it is, look. Now, when I think about unfailing love, I think about mamas of newborns. You would not do what you do for a baby, a newborn baby, for pay. For nine months, that baby's kicked you, punched you, elbowed you, shocked you, stuck you. And then they come out and you say, aren't they precious? And then they go through all that stuff where they're up every so many hours because they're hungry. And they don't just say, Mom, I'm hungry, do they? <laughs> no, God helps those lungs to grow in their infancy. And they start squalling to the high heavens and Dad sleep right through it. And Mama says, are you going to get up? They, Dad says, why? <laughs> Adeline's crying. I don't hear. Mom gets up, doesn't she? And then in the morning, mom gets up and she's preparing everything for the other one to go to school and preparing the household and doing all those things a young mama does. You know what you call that? Unfailing love. Child gets to be two or three and mama says, don't. And he said, I will. Oh my. That mama that was up all night and cared for them and loved on them. And that, that child has that kind of defiance. And you know what that mother does? Tough love. I love you too much to let you get away with that. And they discipline them. And the first thing that child does once they're disciplined, is to, what do they do to their mama? Throw both arms around their neck. That mama watches that child go off to kindergarten or first grade. You'd think she'd be throwing confetti. Free at last. What does that mama do? That child gets on the bus, go to first grade, mama, oh, my baby. I'm thinking, what is wrong with you? And then she stands out there when it's time for that little one to come home. She can't wait. Boy, she's watching on tippy-toe and comes in. How was your day? You know what you call that? Unfailing love. 
When the child falls off a bicycle or gets hit good time playing tag, uh, tag football and pops his lip and he starts squalling, what does that mama do? That child grow up to be a teenager and sometimes just be boneheaded and that mama quietly weeps tears in the back room when the child isn't looking and yet she loves that child with all her heart. What's that called? Unfailing love. They see, you see that and say, yeah, aren't those children ornery? Now, now, forgive me. Pooch your lip out. Here I go. You know what the Bible calls us? You know what the Bible calls us? Mature adults of God, right? Pardon? Not even the living Bible. What does it call us? Children? (laughs) Yeah. Of who? God. Because you know how that two-year-old acts? Let me introduce myself. You know how that wayward six-year-old acts? Guilty. You know how that belligerent teenager acts? Eternally an adolescent. I don't know why you're looking pious. I'm in bad company. But you know what you call the love of the Father? Unfailing. You reckon He knows how to comfort? I am always with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. So you therefore be steadfast and unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Hmm. Secondly, look with me, Psalm 62. Psalm 62, God's love is strong. It's not only steadfast and unmovable. His love is not only unfailing. His love is steadfast and strong. Look with me in Psalm 62. And you need to remember this. There are several verses in Psalm that have similar, a similar uh, uh, group of adjectives to describe God. But this is one of those you can certainly underline. Remember when, when you need to be reminded of God's strength. Now hear me before I look at this. Sometimes we've made love this We've made love this emotion that has no backbone. You you know, it's just that sweet, sweet, fuzzy, warm feeling you get when you're with somebody you love. And it's just all just, oh, it's just so wonderful. Listen, love's hard. And sometimes to love somebody's hard. And sometimes to receive love is hard. And sometimes the kindest love you can get, somebody who says, for your own good, I'm going to put you in a safe place and keep you. Now look at these adjectives David uses of God's love because he's talking about comfort. How do I know God can comfort me? Because his love is always there for me. He's going to be there with his arms wide open. But secondly, God's love is strong. Look at Psalm 62, verse 6. God alone. Now look at these adjectives. He is my rock. He is my salvation. He is my stronghold or fortress. I will not be shaken. God is my salvation. My glory depend on God. He is my, now look, he's added yet another modifier. He is my strong rock. He is my refuge. It's in God. So trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts before him. Why? God is our refuge. Now, did he not say refuge more than once? He said, God is my refuge in verse uh, uh, seven. He says again in verse eight. Why does he say that over and over? God is my rock. He says more. Why does he say it? it's a song? Remember, Psalms are songs. Songs always repeat verses. Songs repeat themes. And so here he says, listen, I don't want you to just hear it once. I don't want you to forget. He said, God is our rock. Now look at this. The love of God is not some sentimental softness. It is not uh, God is both loving, but he's also powerful. Now think with me a minute. If somebody had all strength, but no love, 
on earth, we'd call them a despot, a dictator. Uh, the world has just seen the death of Castro. And because we have a poor memory, we forgot that so many times the way he got to so many times in his early uh, power acquisition and to maintain his power, he just murdered people. He just murdered you. You got in his way, he murdered you. Saddam Hussein, you got in his way, he, there were mass graves. He just murdered you. See, a despot, a person with great strength. Did these men have strength? The whole military behind them. Great fear behind them. So you speak up, you may be dead, and therefore you don't speak up. So here's men who had great power, but no love. No compassion for their people. No, no real sense of interest in them for them. It's what you can do to make me strong. See, a, a person with all strength and no love is a despot. Forgive me, but there are religions that see God only as fearful. We know one that's trying to bomb the world into submission. We cannot know him, according to Islam. We can't know him in Islam. You can't know God, but the only way you impress him is with force of killing infidels. So let's do something to at least get his attention. If we kill infidels, we'll be zipped up into heaven. Isn't that a sad way to live? I don't know God, but I know he's a forceful God. And maybe if I can show force on earth that shows like I have force, like he has force, he'll honor me. Listen, I don't have to kill anybody in the name of my God. He died for me. He died for me. Why'd he do that? Because he's a God of love. Listen, love without mercy, uh, strength without mercy is a despot. But look, love without strength is doting. Is there not anything more sickening than somebody who just dotes on an individual and you say, boy, you better get a hold of this one, that child. Oh, they're, they're, but I know they didn't mean that. Wait till they're 18. Oh, but I don't, I don't, I don't want to discipline them. Let, let, I think they'll grow out of it. Wait till they're 18. See, a person who loves and doesn't have the strength and backbone enough to discipline is just doting. That they really can't help in the long run. Because if all you do is dote on somebody, you really don't have any authority you want to exercise. You're not going to exercise any uh, will over their, over their development. You're not going to pour into them anything they should and hold them accountable. You just want to look at them just, oh, listen, if God had love but no power, we'd just be in a mess. Because when you pray to him, he say, I'd like to help you. I just don't have the power. Oh, I love you. You're my children. But I just, I have no power. See, power without love is scary. Love without power is pitiful. But guess what? Love matched with power is divine. And you know what David said? My God, my God is my rock and my fortress. Look at this. Well, you know what rock means? You know what a rock is, but do you know what he means when he says you're my rock? In biblical times, if you've been to Israel, not you've been to similar places out in Colorado and other places where rocks are everywhere. And Israel looks a lot like places in Colorado or Montana where they're just rocks. They're just rock. That's why they could stone people. There's always ammunition. And there's lots of rock. And so what he's saying is when you're coming through a precipice or a pass or just an open area, if you can get up to a rock, a ledge or a high bluff or a rock, a cliff, and you're up on this rock... You're secure. You can stand on that rock and it's not going to give way. You can stand on the rock and have a greater perspective of what's happening around you. You've seen plenty of Western movies and whoever the good the guy is, up, good, good guy or bad guy, up on the rock looking down, he's got a much better chance of attacking without being attacked than the guys on the ground. David said, God, you are high and lifted up. You're my rock. Uh, when I get to, when, I, when you lift me up to where you are and put me, my feet on a strong rock, I don't live in fear. 
See, I live in fear when the enemy is right here and he's got a weapon and I feel weaponless and he's got power and I feel powerless and suddenly it's a peer, uh, it's somebody of my peer, but he has more power than me and I have no defense. David said, God, you comfort me because you lift me up and set me on a high precipice, a rock. But then look what he says. Not only is there a rock, but look at this, a second picture, military. You're my salvation. See, if somebody just picks you up and, and they set you right up here at the height of a music stand or the height of, a, height of this uh, uh, backdrop, that's not really very high. I can still reach you with a sword or a spear. I can still get you. He said, God, you lift him up high enough. I was saved. I was delivered. How high did God lift you up? He put your feet like hinds feet to walk in the heavenly places. When you trusted Jesus, he is the love that lifted me out of my sin and out of my strife and put me forever in the kingdom of heaven. He erased me from destruction because my name was written in the book of life. And when he saved me, he didn't save me for a season. He didn't save me for a short time. He saved me forevermore. You are my rock. You lifted me up, put my feet on something secure, and you are my salvation. Look what else he says. The reason I'm comforted, you're my fortress. Is there anything more sad than to find somebody fleeing to a fortress? We've seen military, military news and military operations where men fled to where they thought was a safe place, only they find they'd been booby-trapped, and they walked right into a trap. You ever run to somewhere you thought was safe only to find out, oh my, I walked right into it, preacher. And it was, they were waiting on me with these things and I walked right into it and it was awful. You've been there. You know what David says of God? You know why you comfort me, God? You've already got the rock picked out that's going to see me through. You already know that you're going to, you want to save me when I depend on you. You will save me to the uttermost. And God, not only that, when I flee to the fortress of your love, it's not, it's not booby-trapped. It's not insecure. It's not in poor repair. God, the walls of your fortress are strong. The strength of your defenses are great. And once I'm inside, the security of the will of God and the word of God and the salvation of God, no force in hell can come against me with effectiveness what the Bible says. No weapon formed against me can prosper. The gates of hell cannot prevail. So he says, God, you're, you're a good comforter because you're my rock and you're my salvation, my fortress. And look what he says in verse 7. You're my salvation and my glory. When you celebrate the fact that you were delivered, you say, boy, I didn't think I'd get through that, but if I hadn't been so quick, so shrewd, I wouldn't have. I, you know, I don't know what makes me so good. I just, I just think on my feet. I just know how to get out of stuff. And I, Is that where you go? When you get delivered, when you get, when you get a second chance, boy, I'm, such a, I'm so smart. Is that where you go? What do you say? My glory is not in me. I didn't invent the salvation. I didn't know where the rock of safety was. I couldn't have gotten up to it if I tried. You can't save yourself. You can't climb up high enough to please God. It was God who put me on a rock. He is my rock of salvation. It's God who delivered me from the pit. It's God who saved me and was my salvation from my enemies. It's God whose fortress is secure. And look what he says. When I think on that, I'm comforted because I realize, God, you, you are my glory and my salvation. And then he repeats it again. It's a song. You are my strong mark. My, 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 look at this. My refuge, my refuge, my refuge. I like that. What does that mean? 
Do you have that place that you go that's just a safe place, makes you feel safe? Where's your safe? Now, I don't mean a safe. Some of you say, well, I'm thinking about storm shelter and tornado weather. That is a safe place. But when, you're, when your heart's broken, you're heavy of heart and broken in spirit and struggling with something, boy, you just, you're just under pressure. Do you have a place in your family room, a place in your bedroom, a place in your study, and that's your space to just go meet with God? I hope you do. You have your little note tablet there and your Bible open so that folks that come there say, this is where, this is where my dad or my pastor or my friend, where my wife or my husband, this is where they meet with God. That's holy ground. David said, God, you, you, you are my hiding place, my refuge. You're that place I flee to when I'm really in trouble and I just got to see your face. You know, one of the sweetest things in the world gives you comfort is when you've been alone with God and His Word and you begin to pray and you just sense that presence. You know what I'm talking about. When you just sense the presence of God fill the room and it's like no other. And suddenly it's not like God is out there and you're talking to Him. He's just right here and you're afraid to speak. I mean, just sense His nearness. You've had those times and I have too and you just, you just feel weak and yet you feel wonderful and you feel strong because He's here. When that happens, here's what happens. In that refuge moment, that hiding place moment, maybe you say, like Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me just hide myself. Let me hide myself in Thee. Huh. Do you know what it is to find comfort? Truly find comfort in the Lord? Robert Louis Stevenson was obviously a great author. And he tells a story about one time being on a small craft or some people being on a small craft and they were just off a rocky coast and a storm hit and it was very severe, very treacherous, turbulent. And these folks really wondered, are we going to make it? And obviously the pilot was in the, the steersman was, steerman was in the pilot's house and he was trying to get that ship through, uh, through the storm and turned out to sea and away from the rocks that would have beat it to a pulp. And the people were down below and they were terrified. And because the battle didn't seem to be going quickly, one of the passengers did the unthinkable. He wasn't content to just be down there at the bottom of the boat just being tossed about and wondering, are we going to make it? Because if we had a rock, guess who's going to get the rock first? Those at the bottom of the boat. And so he did the unthinkable. One of the passengers opened the door to be able to come out onto the deck and there with all the wind and the waves beating that deck and water washing over the deck, he literally like a child began to crawl with just enough to press his feet and his hands against, uh, against the railing to be able to get just any forward movement at all. Finally, he got to where the pilot house was. And just inside the pilot house, he saw the steersman, steersman working so desperately trying to move the trying to move and hold the wheel. Inch by inch, he was moving it away from the rocks and moving more and more out to sea. And now it was obvious that he about, he about made the last turn and they were going to be safe. And when, he, when this passenger popped up over the glass, he saw the face of the pilot. The pilot, rather stunned, saw a face looking in at him. And when the pilot saw the face of a man who was in such anguish, wondering, are we going to make it? The pilot smiled and nodded his head and gave it a thumbs up. 
man came back down the treacherous path he'd come up and went back into the belly of the ship where the people were and they said where in the world have you been are you crazy he said I've just seen the face of the pilot he assured me all is well we're gonna make it when's the last time you saw the face of the pilot When's the last time you were close enough through the turbulence to look right into his face and the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace? We're going to make it because our security is not in planet earth. Our security is not in Washington. Our security is in God Almighty. So the third reason comfort comes from the Lord. His love is unfailing. His love is strong. But there's a third thing, and that's God's our refuge. Psalm 91. Psalm 91. This is the last one. You need to see this one because this is a good image. Psalm 91, verses 4 and 5. God will cover you with His feathers. <laughs> and that'll preach. Any of y'all had a picture of God with feathers? It's obviously a poetic picture, isn't it? Anybody here, surely nobody here believes God has feathers, do you? Please tell me no. It's a picture. Psalm 91, God will cover you with His feathers. You'll take refuge under His wings. That's a picture of a mama bird. He's going to cover you with His feathers. Psalm 91, 4, He'll take refuge under His wings. You'll take refuge under His wings. His faithfulness will be a protective shield. You'll not fear the terror of night or the air that flies by day. Isn't that good? He's going to cover me with his feathers. Isn't it neat to watch little young birds or chicks or little ducks or whatever come when, when something scares them and they'll just get right there under mama and start wiggling right under mama. She just brings those wings over and just covers them over. You know what happens? We look pretty funny too. When we act so tough normally and suddenly something breaks us and scares us and people who don't normally call on God start calling call out, Dear God, please hear me now. Please help me now. We scurry like little chicks under the mother's wings. And the Bible says if you know the Lord, you've come home. If you know the Lord, if you know the Lord, you've come home. It says when you come to Him and cry to Him, He covers you with His wings secure. We're not going to be terrified by night. Because we know we're in His hands. I don't know how many times you look at that cross up there. Our theme as a church is seeing the world through the cross. But I was so grateful when the stained glass was designed. The design of the stained glass added that marvelous picture. Used to be an old spiritual, you remember? He's got the whole world where? In His hands. Got you and me, brother. Where? In His hands. That's a good place to be. We don't sing hymns much anymore because we, first of all, don't care for the melodies. They're old and antiquated. Most of them are 200 years plus. We didn't know the lyrics when we sang the hymns, so we'd always have to look at them. After years of singing, we still need to look at the book because we didn't take time to let them sink in. If I mentioned the name Joseph Scriven to you, you'd say, that doesn't mean anything to me. In fact, Joseph Scriven lived and died and nobody cared except Joseph Scriven wrote one of the great hymns of the faith. He was a man who lived in the 1800s, and boy, his life, you can read it later. I don't have time to go through all the things that hit him, but he, 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 he was a man of sorrow. 
His first wife, he's engaged to be married. They were out on a ride, and he was on this side of the bridge watching his wife come across a bridge to come to him on a horse, and something happened. The horse spooked or something, threw her off into a river, and before they could get to her, she drowned. The day before her wedding day, he was crushed. He had been entered into the Catholic Church as a boy, but he began to focus on Plymouth Brethren and their beliefs, and so he left his home in Ireland and went to Canada to be a missionary, mainly because his fiance had died because he was at odds with his Catholic family. Now he's part of the Plymouth Brethren. And he went through a whole series of things. I won't go into them now, but the bottom line is, at one point in his life, his mother was dying. He was, because of what he'd been through, taken up a vow of poverty. He would not work to cut wood for people if you had money. He set, up a, uh, he set up a sawhorse and would cut wood only for those people who said, we have no warmth in our home. And he'd cut wood for them and help them carry wood to their house so they wouldn't freeze. He said, well, was called by many people an eccentric. By those who had nothing, he was called our dearest friend. He got word in Canada his mother was dying. And because he was a poor man, he couldn't get on a boat to go home and see his mom before she died way over in Ireland. And so he realized that the closest and best I can do is send her a letter. So he wrote her a poem and sent it to her, never thinking anybody ever see it but his mama. Some years later, when he himself was dying, a friend came to see him and he saw scribbled on a piece of paper the words of that song. And he kind of got to look and his scriven was in and out of being awake and he got to reading it and he thought, well, that's good. So when he woke up, he said, Joseph, did you write that? In his typical humility, he said, the Lord and I worked on it together. You don't know the name Joseph Scriven. I dare say you know his handiwork. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Have you trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? Please don't ever be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my strong hand. God really is our comfort. Stand with me, would you? Perhaps this morning.